Now, finally, after such a long climb, the narrative has reached its climax. These are the words of German scholar Hermann Gunkel um, commenting on Genesis chapter 45, which is where we're going to be working out of today. Um, and if you've been following along with this series, you would say, yeah, it, it, these last few weeks in some ways have felt like a long climb. Um, uh, we've been looking these last, last few weeks in this mini episode in, um, in our Joseph series of what I've been calling God's Great Reunion Project. And, uh, and the narrative really has slowed down. And by the way, apologies for my video. I can see that I'm very, very jerky. I hope that that, um, that kind of smooths itself out as we go on. Um, and if, you've, if you're just joining us, what we've been seeing is, is how God has been sovereignly and providentially working through the, the, the massive world events that we've been seeing going on. Um, and, and how he has been working to join his family at this time back together and the story has pivoted around 11 brothers um, and their other brother Joseph who they have been separated from for 20 years and the, the, they've been having various different interactions and the narrative hinge that has been going across it is that when they first met after 20 years Joseph who is on his own out of these these brothers immediately recognized all of the other brothers for for who they were and he knew that these were these brothers that he's been separated from but the other 11, 11 brothers throughout this whole time have had absolutely no idea whatsoever that this was joseph their brother that they've been talking to and then just to add another layer of intrigue and and, and drama to the whole thing the brothers are finding themselves well the, the whole world is going through a crisis it is a there is a famine that is affecting everybody and the the brothers find themselves right in the midst of the famine no food whatsoever whereas joseph has become a ruler in egypt the nation that has all of the food so there's these crazy power dynamics going on as well and last week we saw how Joseph set a test for the rest of his brothers, uh, trying to work out, uh, can I really trust these brothers? Can I really trust these guys who sold me off into slavery 20 years ago? Can I trust them to reveal my identity to them? And we saw how Judah representing the rest of the brothers demonstrated the intense transformation that they've been on by pleading to Joseph saying, I will sacrifice myself so that the father might uh, so that I'll sacrifice myself so my father might know no pain. I will take on all of the pain so my father might be spared. And then as we continue on, the, the story that Judah's speech flows right into um, Genesis chapter 45. So we'll pick it up from verse one in the narrative. And then we'll, we'll look at um, some of it together at the minute. I'll just read it out for now. And then we'll look at some further verses on the screen in just a bit. So verse one from chapter 45. Then Joseph could control himself, uh, could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So he's alone. He's got rid of all of his officials and his uh, staff that are with him. And so it's just him and his brothers in the room. And he wept aloud. Verse two. So that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed 
at his presence. And so Joseph now has reached a point where he just he cannot contain his uh, his desire to be united with the brothers. He's, he knows that he can trust them. And so he reveals his identity. I am Joseph. And the brothers then we realize we, we learn in verse three were dismayed at his presence. And I think this is probably a good contender for one of the most uh, the biggest understatements in the whole of scripture. The, the brothers were dismayed at, the, at his presence. Um, your translation might have it that, that the brothers were terrified at the, uh, Joseph's presence, which I think is a little bit closer to the mark. I think if I was trying to describe how events were at that point, I would probably go down the line of the brothers were totally and completely freaking out at Joseph's presence. But just try and put ourselves in the brothers' shoes just for a minute. They had sold Joseph into slavery. And when they sold him off and in the caravan way back in chapter 37, they had literally no idea whatsoever where they were sending him. They just sold him to some random people and they toddled off on their caravan. No idea where Joseph is going. And their best guess at this point would be, well, Joseph is probably dead. There is no way that Joseph can still be alive at this point. And if you'd ask them, OK, Joseph's alive. I can tell you that much. Where is the literal last place that you would expect to find him? I imagine pretty top, uh, pretty close to the top of their list would be, oh, uh, probably ruling the greatest superpower that has ever existed in human, human history. That is probably where the last place that I would expect to find my brother. And here's Joseph. Surprise, here I am. The brothers are losing their heads at this point. Notice that they can't talk. In verse 3, we, we hear that the brothers could not answer him. Not that they would not, but they could not answer him. And it's not until verse 15 later on that the brothers regain their power of speech. So it's not quite the party that we might have envisaged um, the brothers having when they're reunited with Joseph. Later on in the narrative, they do start talking again and they even hug Remember hugs? Remember what that's like, that thing you do with your arm? They, they do that. And, but it's not really until next week that we see the, the reunion of this family start to really come into fullness. What I want to focus on today is what Joseph then says to the brothers next from verse 4 onwards to alleviate some of their fears. And I'm calling the message today the real story. And we heard it, as I said, a little bit from Jess just there. But what I want us to, to see is how Joseph has managed to um, reinterpret and re-see re all of the events of his life and to get hold of this, an alternative, a real narrative for what has actually been happening in his life and how we are able to do exactly the same thing and particularly start to make sense of some of the, the pain and the suffering and the difficulties that we face. So let's look at, um, let's look at verses 4 to 13 together. So we're going to read through um, read through this together. So let me let me read for us from verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, "Come near to me, please." And they came near. And he said, "I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life." For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither ploughing nor harvest. 
And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now you see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that this is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honour in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Now, in the next slide, um, I've just put all of the words together in one place. So don't worry about reading it. What I just want to emphasize um, through highlighting is just a, a few things of uh, just an emphasis that Joseph has. Just look at those bits there that are, are highlighted. Look at how Joseph has this emphasis as he recounts his story to Joseph and what has been going on. Five times he says, God sent me. God sent me. And then verse eight, emphatically, it is not you who sent me here, but God. And then he says, he has made me a father to Pharaoh. And then verse eight, uh, verse nine, similarly, as he's asking his brothers to talk to his father, saying, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. That Joseph is reconfiguring and re-seeing all of these events through the eyes of what God has been doing. And we see here, thanks very much, Alex. We see here that the, what is going on is that as the, as the drama of the, the, the narrative starts to come to a head and a climactic moment starts to come about, and this big reveal starts to happen, that just as clearly what is coming through is the message that the author of Genesis has been wanting to bring through in the Joseph series starts to really come forward to a big reveal moment as well. If you've been tracking along with the stories, you would, have, you would have seen that the Joseph narrative is actually in many ways a very human narrative and a very natural narrative for the Bible. I mean, we have, you might have noticed as we've gone through, there's been no uh, rivers turning into blood. There's been no burning bushes. We haven't even had an angelic appearance. We have been seriously shortchanged when it comes to miraculous supernatural moments. But what the author has been trying to point out throughout the whole of the story is that this is not a godless adventure. That through the whole thing, even in Joseph's earlier years, in the early chapters of the narrative, that he's been putting in comments like the Lord was with Joseph or the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed or the Lord tested Joseph. We've seen three times God give three different sets of dreams to three different, very different types of people and fulfill them all. We've seen in more recent weeks God guiding hand in the brothers' lives to turn them back to himself and fulfilling some staggering prophetic dreams. And we've even seen him starting to awake Jacob, the, fa the father of these brothers, and awaken him back to, to himself. And now at this peak moment in the narrative of the drama, we get the peak moment of this message that the author is sending forward. That here Joseph himself states repeatedly, emphatically and clearly, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me, he has made me, he has made me. 
that the theological heartbeat of this whole narrative, now the volume has been turned up to 11 on it and we can hear it blazing forward that Joseph is saying every single detail, God has been involved in my story. And I think it's really significant that Joseph himself says it. And I think verse five is of particular interest to us. If we could just have that on the screen, Alex, thanks very much. Let's just read this together. Joseph says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. And then immediately after he says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. You get that. I've just highlighted it here. He says, you sold me into Egypt. And then he says immediately after that, God sent me into Egypt. That just in the space of one little comma, as you can see on the screen there, a complete and total perspective change on the events of his life. The same event being sent to Egypt, but two completely different perspectives, viewing it from two very different viewpoints. That what Joseph has been able to do, thanks so much, Alex, what Joseph has been able to do here is he has been able to choose a whole new perspective through which he is able to reinterpret the events of his story. That if he was just to view it through the eyes of his ground level view, if you like, then all he'd be able to perceive what he's been through is, you sold me into slavery. You did evil to me. And that evil that you did to me just led to more evil and more evil and more evil. It just led to me being taken further and further and further away from God's people, away from God's land and out of God's purposes. But here Joseph is saying, just in the space of one comma, he goes from that to saying, but that is not the real story. Verse eight, again, just how emphatically he states it. So he says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. So in the real story, I can see now there is a deeper narrative going on in all of the events that I faced. All of it was God working in my life and doing his good purposes for me and for others. Now, I really don't like to boast. Um, I know it's very, very unbecoming, um, but there is one area that I think I really excel in that I'd like to share with you th this morning. And that is, I am excellent. I go as far as to say I am brilliant at feeling sorry for myself. That I can be going through life feeling encouraged, feeling happy, but then just one moment, just one email or one thing can come against me, a, a perceived setback or anything that just looks or feels a little bit like pain or suffering can come against me. And I find it so easy to then just start to feel put upon or hard done by or uh, like God has abandoned me or some of what Jess was saying, just like that the, the God is no longer in the room and that I've been left to my own devices and just find it so easy to start to feel discouraged. I don't know if you're the same, but when I read Joseph's story, I think if I went through that, I would just be a broken man. How do you still keep going when you face all of that? And I realise as I think about some of these things that, that how often and how easy I find it to, for my default perspective to be that I only see the events of my life through one perspective, through one viewpoint. That I only interpret them through what I see. 
And so when something bad happens, that's just a bad thing. And there's no redeeming quality to it at all. And I find it so easy to miss this perspective that Joseph's sharing with us here. This perspective of, no, God is still at work. And I think for us, particularly in this time, if we are going to navigate these days that we find ourselves in well as disciples of, and followers of Jesus Christ, that it is essential that we get hold of what Joseph is showing to us here, this, this real narrative, this real story, that we're able to live in this narrative of God that reframes all of the suffering that we face and helps give us confidence that God is doing something in it, that there is more than just pain and difficulty and challenge, but there's something else going on at the same time. I love the honesty of Joseph's brothers right here. I'm sorry, the honesty that Joseph shows towards his brothers. That twice in his, his speech here, he just straight up says to them, you sold me into slavery. He doesn't try and avoid the issue because it might just be a little bit uncomfortable. He doesn't try and sugarcoat it uh, and just so that they can play at being happy families together. No, he says it straight up. He says, you sold me into slavery. You did evil to me. Wrong came against me. It hurt. This was pain and this was suffering. Joseph's saying here, look, when I look at my story, there is no denying it. It is clear and it is obvious. Evil was at work against me. But what Joseph says equally as clearly is that when evil came against him, and although his life has been surrounded by pain and by suffering and setback after setback after setback or things that you could perceive as setbacks, equally as clearly, he's saying those things were totally and completely powerless to stop God from working in my life and achieving what he wanted to do in me and through me. Again, just returning to verse five, I think it's so helpful for us. He says, you sold me into Egypt and God sent me into Egypt. You notice what he's saying there. What he's saying is that evil tried to get hold of me and carry me off as far as it possibly could from God's purposes. It tried to remove me from God's land. It tried to remove me from God's people. It tried to take me out of the blessing and the goodness of God. And what did it end up doing? All that evil could do was end up serving God's agenda. All it ended up doing was sending Joseph exactly where God wanted him to be all along. That the enemy brought all of his work against Joseph and tried to take him out. And he just ended up being God's servant and doing exactly what God wanted to happen all along. Do you see that in the in the narrative? Isn't that incredible? And I think it's just it, we must remember the voice that is saying these things. Now, this is Joseph who has languished and lost so many years of his life in a prison cell, locked up, chained up, bound. Probably no light, his muscles wasting away. And yet the powerful testimony that comes forth from his soul is the enemy roared and raged against me. The enemy tried to bite and devour me. And yet God was able to take 
all of that, all of the pain, all of the suffering, and he brought good out of it. That God took all of the things that happened against me and he brought blessing forth. He has done good to me through it. Notice the, the, what he says in verse, um, the second half of the verse 8. So he says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me. God has made me. He's so clear about it. God has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his fat house and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. Through evil being done to him, blessing came forward. And not just for him, but also for his family. Verse 10, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children, children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. All of you are going to experience blessing through the evil that has been done to me. Here we see how God has this, this complete mastery over even the enemy's work. That he's got the he's got the enemy bound in this kind of crazy catch twenty two situation where if the enemy doesn't do anything and just sits back, then God just has a free reign to, to just accomplish all of his purposes of saving and blessing and, and and being good to his people. But then if the enemy thinks, oh, I don't like the sound of that, I'm going to come against God and I'm going to try and, and, and crush his plans and squash his efforts to be good to his people. And I want to bring evil and destruction on this land. And so then he works hard and he, he does his, his utmost to frustrate and come against God's good purposes. Then all that he ends up doing is helping God's purposes and plans along. He is completely bound and completely mastered. And God just has him like a puppet on a string saying, you can do whatever you like. You can bring as much evil and as much pain as you like, but you will not stop my good purposes. In fact, you will only serve them and continue to bring them about. That this is the role that evil has. That we can look at a situation like COVID-19 coming on this on this planet and think, surely that is only loss. Surely it's only destruction. Surely it's only just the the awful work of the enemy and it is and it's painful and it's suffering for each of us in many many different ways and it's affecting all of us in so many different ways some of us really personally and painfully and then others just the removal of so many parts of our lives and it can be so easy to just look at it from this one perspective and think well this is just loss this is just setback but here we see even this this world crisis that we find ourselves in god is mastering it and there will come a day we can have such confidence such hope that even this will be used to advance god's good good purposes and his sovereign plan for the whole of humanity joseph mangina in his commentary in the book of revelation actually so right at the other end of scripture to where we are now says this evil powers cannot but help serve the sanctifying of God's church that they cannot help it they will always end up serving God's plan from beginning right through to the very end it really is the story of of the whole of scripture from Genesis right through to Revelation and everywhere in between and it is certainly the story that we see coming forth at the cross of Jesus Christ the moment where evil and death and destruction 
dealt its cruelest blow. The brutal moment where the enemy so clearly and so tangibly came against God himself and crushed his body and mutilated him and looked like evil had had the greatest victory. And yet, even in that moment, even where it looked like evil had finally had claimed a step forward, out of that came God's biggest triumph. Even in that moment, he showed his complete mastery over all of evil, how he can use the, the work of the enemy and his greatest designs to bring about salvation and glory and blessing. And for us, as followers of Jesus Christ, of, as people of the cross, this is our story. This is the narrative that we now live in. That Jesus himself said these words. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's a great promise for us, isn't it? In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, have confidence. I have overcome the world. It's quite an enigmatic statement, but what we see here is that Joseph, even thousands of years before, has kind of started to get hold of this narrative. He started to understand this for himself that evil and suffering and pain, as unpleasant as they are, they are promised to us. We can expect them. We don't have to be surprised when they come against us. And they certainly are not signs that we are not doing the right thing or we've been punished or that, we're, that God has abandoned us. These things will all come against us. But just like Joseph, we don't choose what comes against us, but we do choose what perspective we see them through. We do get to choose what story, which story influences our thinking. And that as God's people, this is our story now. It's so essential that we get hold of this, that we embrace it, that we know this is the narrative that we are now living in. That evil and pain may come against us and it will really hurt and it doesn't diminish at all the reality of the suffering that we face. But right in the midst of it, we can take heart. We can believe, we can know the enemy is raging, he's biting, he's devouring us. But evil will not get the last word. He cannot take us. And that actually everything that comes against us, everything, every moment, God is working in it, he's using it, and he's turning it around to bring about his sovereign plan of salvation and blessing not just in our lives, but in our, our church family life, in this nation and in this world. He's using it all and moving it to accomplish his good and sovereign purposes. He will turn it round to triumph and he will turn it round to blessing. But of course, the real story doesn't end with evil still reigning. That, in fact, that is just a little chapter in our story. It's, just, it's the part that we're in now, but it is, is not God's ultimate plan. That his ultimate plan is that he works through all things. He works through the good, he works through the evil, and he works through the neutral in order to bring about complete and total salvation and deliverance for his people. That one day they will have no suffering, that one day his people will know no torment and no anguish of the soul. 
And that is exactly what happens in the rest of this chapter. That the narrative in the rest of chapter 45 starts to pick up a steam to achieve and bring about the, the full reunion of God's people that he's been working towards so far. And, and really, verse 9 through to 28, it, it starts to, and in fact, you could almost take it back to, to verse 3. Joseph's initial opening words to his brothers, is my father still alive? And then much more clearly from verse 9 all the way through to the rest of the, the end of the passage, we see God sovereignly moving to bring that one member of his, his people the one member of his family that is still in the place of suffering, still in the place of, of anguish and evil and torment and looking to bring him out of that land, out of Canaan, into the blessing and the abundance of Egypt. We see it in, in Joseph's speech twice. He says to his brothers, you might have picked up on it, hurry, go and get my father and bring him here. And then from verse 16 through to 20, um, Pharaoh starts talking. He gets wind of the fact that the brothers are around. And so he then commands. I don't really know under what authority other than just he is Pharaoh. He, I don't know why, but he just starts saying, you must go and get your father and bring him here. Twice he says that. And then verse 21 through to 24, we read of the brothers preparing to go back to Canaan to go and get Jacob. And getting a gift together so that he would know Joseph really is alive. That we start to see God is on the move to bring salvation, to get his people out of danger and into blessing. And in Pharaoh's um, short passage in here, 16 through to 20, he three times says something of the variety of your family are going to enjoy the best of the land or the, the fat of the land. That even Pharaoh here is saying you are going to be blessed, people of God. And what I just love here is that we see, as we've been seeing, Joseph is now as the representation, I guess, of, the, of God's people. He is firmly aligning himself with the advancement of God's sovereign purposes, as you might expect. But he's also been showing us how the evil powers can't help but advance God's sovereign purposes. But now with Pharaoh getting in on the act, even the pagan world superpowers are joining in on moving God's sovereign purposes forwards. That we've got a full house represented here. God's people, evil powers, pagan superpowers. They're all in on the act. It's like God is, is moving every fibre of creation and all of the energy of creation to move along his people into salvation. And so from verse 25, we pick up the story. And this is the brothers. So they, they went up out of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over the land of Egypt. I just think it's quite surprising they didn't ask him, Are you, can you sit down before you hear this news? This would have been quite a thing for him to process. And his heart became numb. For he did not believe them. But when they told him of all the words of Joseph, and when he said to them, uh, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, this is just another name for Jacob, Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go 
and see him before I die. And here we see a complete contrast from the other times that the brothers have come back and come before jo uh, Jacob. Every other time it ended up in Jacob saying some variety of my soul is going down to Sheol. Basically saying to his brother, his sons, when they come before him, every time you come before me, you just bring more death and more misery and more weeping before me. But now this time they come before him, they share the news and the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. He started to come alive again upon hearing this good news. This man who evil has been encircling him and the grip of evil has been getting tighter and tighter and tighter around him. His soul has been tormented. He finds himself now at the point of death with no hope of saving himself, totally at the mercy of this worldwide famine that has come upon him and every other nation around. He's wasting away. And then the good news come to him. Just a few words spoken to him. Just the news that the son is alive and everything starts to change. He hears those words and as he starts to comprehend and as he starts to believe and he starts to see that it's true, his soul starts to lift and everything about him starts to change. And you might think, well, well, why? I mean, he, materially, he's still in famine. How on earth could, like, why does he start to change when he's still in this land? His circumstances aren't different. This is hope rising. And not a hope that he might have had previously of, of maybe one day my circumstances might perhaps change and I don't really see how and, and that blessing might come upon me, but I don't really, and maybe Joseph perhaps could possibly be alive somewhere. No, this empty hope is turned to certain hope because of the news the sun is alive that now he knows there is a day coming soon where he will be reunited with Joseph his son and all will be made well all of his pain and his suffering will be taken away and he will know goodness and blessing and rejoice in it and we also find ourselves in Jacob's story that we too have heard the good news the son is alive and just like Jacob as we hear that news as we comprehend it as it starts to become more and more real to us our souls and our spirits start to lift that the son lives we too have had any empty hope or or misguided hope replaced with this certain hope a certain hope that there is a day coming where we will be fully united with the son who lives we will one day be reunited fully united to the son of god jesus christ the the son who lives and stands and on that day our suffering will finally end the story that we've been drawn into, the story of the cross does not end there, but it leads into the story of resurrection. It leads into the story of certain hope. 
the story that we're in now, it helps us to make sense of evil. It helps us to process and, and reinterpret the suffering and the pain that we face. But it also tells us that one day this suffering and this pain is coming to an end. That Jacob, as we look at his story, we're reminded that anguish and pain and torment will one day come to an end. It is not forever. However severe it is, it's only for a time. And one day we will be with the sun and all will be made right. And right at the end here, just as we finish, is that little change of Jacob's name. Notice how right at the end of verse 27, it says their father Jacob revived. And then verse 28 starts and Israel said, speaking of exactly the same person. And we have this little symmetry of just a mark of punctuation and it's the same person but just seen from two very different perspectives that before he was Jacob the man dying the man in the grip of evil but now he is Israel the man revived the man right back in the purposes of God the man walking his way to salvation the way the man walking his way to Egypt where he will be right in the midst of God's plan, where he will be the, the nation Israel will begin to be built through the family being fully reunited. And we'll pick up the narrative again next time. Won't be next week, won't be the week after that, but in three weeks time, we'll be right back in the Joseph narrative. I can't wait to see the final chapter as God starts to build his nation, build Israel, a nation that will stand for the whole of eternity.